thank you very much everyone for your time it's a friday evening i know you could be doing well pretty much anything else so we do not take your time for granted thank you very much for deciding to spend the next hour and a bit with us my name is raman young i'm a business journalist you might find my work occasionally on bloomberg and at cgtn africa we're 24 hours out from okuru yatani presenting essentially what is okuru kenyatta's last budget as president to fairly ambitious spending plan of a 3 trillion Kenyan shillings, essentially sticking to type, as it were, planning to spend a lot more money year on year. But what are the weak links in this particular budget? What does it tell us about the state of public finances? What does it tell us about the intent to tax us either more or less, depending on the sector you're looking at? And what does that tell us about our financial future in this little corner of East Africa? We're going to be exploring that in the course of the next hour and a bit. So we're going to be hearing from four pretty smart, pretty talented people in the course of the conversation. There's a CEO at IA Kenya, a fantastic economist, regular commentator on matters to do with public policy in this little corner of ours. Nikhil here is a partner at Cody Africa. He's won quite a few more hats before that. Also one of the few people on this particular panel who can actually point out that, yes, we've actually done this for the better part of, I think, 10 years now, just on different forums, speaking about budgets every now and then. We'll also be joined by Fubin Jogger, a manager at Anderson Kenya, and Josephine Yamai, budget coordinator at the Coast Regional Budget Hub. These are all the individuals that you're going to be hearing with for the first 60 minutes thereafter, of course, as always on one go, we'll open up the floor uh, to your views, your comments, uh, and your questions for a much wider ranging discussion rather concerning Kenya's 2022-2023 budget. Kwame and Nikhil, let's start with you. In 60 seconds, your impressions of Okoriatani's budget as presented yesterday. Kwame? All right, thanks. Well, I think, again, it's just more of the same, a huge deficit. I think the way to summarize it is that uh, fiscal consolidation died three years ago. I think it was buried yesterday. Short and to the point. Nickel, what did you make of yesterday's budget? I got bored, to be honest. Yeah, I, I think I agree with Kwame. There was a lot of stuff we'd heard before, sense of deja vu. I think we need to bear in mind that this is an election year. And while the incumbent government obviously isn't standing for a big post, election year budgets tend to be rather low-key. And I think this one was too, but there was a lot of stuff that we'd heard before. And I, I don't see that there's any real move to change things, which is a bit of a concern. Thank you. All right, let me start with the things that we've heard before. And Nikhil and, and, and Kwame, I'd like your input on this. Because as far as I can remember, for all the last 10 plus years in which I've been covering budgets in this corner of East Africa, one key thing that always comes up is this issue of supplier debt. And especially over the last five, six years, it's been a regular element of the budget statements that we get read for in Parliament by successive finance cabinet secretaries. And as of end last year, the Kenyan government collectively owed suppliers something like 467 billion Kenyan shillings. That's 40% higher compared to December 2020. What is it about the way government works that makes it so difficult to just clear these pending bills? Is it a money issue? Is it an operational issue? What is it that we're not seeing from behind the curtain? Let me try and comment. I, I guess partly it is a money issue, but I don't think that's the whole story. I think there is a bureaucratic issue as well, which means that the process of approving such payments is taking a lot longer than it should. There is an issue of a lot of fraudulent invoices, which obviously makes the process that much slower because you've you really got to check everything. That number of 467 billion, even, even if we assume that 75% of it is, is really due, releasing that into the economy will make a huge difference. I'm sure uh, 
Kwame will be able to comment on that more. And as you said, Rama, and, and I tweeted yesterday during the speech, when he announced it, I said, oh, Lord, not again. Heard this, been there, done that, and nothing is happening. And, and I have a few concerns about the tax stuff that will link back to this in some ways, which we can come to later. Thank you. Kwame, your views on this whole pending bills problem, what is it we're not seeing about the, the, the systemic nature, the systemic origins of this particular problem? Well, I think as Nikhil has suggested, yes, it's actually an operations issue. One of those is that it's clear that some staff or rather some procurement entities are actually procuring staff which was not planned for in the budget, and then kicking it into the future uh, budget. So part of that is actually just cleaning up the bureaucracy in terms of who uh, is responsible for what kind of spending. It is also possible that a huge part of it is actually either inflated invoices or even uh, completely uh, fraudulent in invoices. But this is a representation of what big corruption Kenya has, which is basically uh, procurement fraud. And a good part of those actually would be uh, a reflection of that, just padding the numbers. Just sort of related to that as a corollary of, of what we're discussing, that the fact of the matter is that for a lot of these inflated expenditures, uh, if you're looking at, at it in dollar terms, it's around $4 billion, right, in extra debt that we essentially have to pay. And I've been asked this question before, but I don't have a clear answer for it. So perhaps from an accounting perspective, Nikhil and Kwame might be able to clear this up for me. If we owe suppliers $4 billion, why aren't we considering that as part of our national set of liabilities? Because I know from a pure accounting standpoint, it's different from owing someone, you know, financial debt. But if you're considering the, the fiscal health of the country as a whole, I mean, surely it's something we should take into account, shouldn't it? Oh, yes. That's close to 5% of GDP. It's not a small amount of money. So it actually is debt. And if you put it together with the suppliers, yes, it bumps the debt to closer to 80% of GDP right now. But what I wanted to say was that the one quote-unquote advantage which happens, so for the legitimate invoices, what that does is actually government uses inflation to deflate the real cost. The other debts don't have the same disadvantage, especially if the interest rate is above the inflation rate. So that's one of the things that happens here. The reason some people wait that much as well is just because basically there's intransigence. Somebody is asking for a cut in order for payments to be made. So yes, it's actually something that should actually be isolated and place separately and those invoices be registered one after the other. And the way to do it is actually for government to simply insist that, fine, you will give us the records of all, how much we owe you, and that will be audited independently of the department that actually issued that debt. So that's one. And I'm sure it would clean up a good percentage of that. As Nikhil suggested, maybe even 25% of that is out. And remember, 25% of that would be close to $90 billion, and that's substantial, certainly. I, I totally agree with what Kwame says. This has become long-term debt. You would normally expect 90-day credit, 120-day credit, maybe even 180-day credit. But this has become years. And there doesn't seem to be any end in sight, which is a concern, because it, it basically, suppliers are funding government interest-free and borrowing uh, at, at whatever interest rate they pay. And this question about having it all audited, I, I recall back in 98, I worked with um, the KRA on, on VAT refund audits. And, and we agreed that external auditors could do the audit and it's still being done till today. And it sped up the process. So there's nothing wrong with get, saying, okay, supplier, give us all the evidence. We'll get someone to audit it. Doesn't have to be within government. You can get an accounting firm to audit it. And I, I'm sure clients would be willing to pay for me to do that if they're going to get their money back. But the critical thing is that if we don't give this back, we're headed to a position where a lot of companies are now teetering on the brink of bankruptcy because they just don't have the working capital. And the government really has to do something about this. 
Your original question, yes, I think it should be part of the debt. And we probably are really sitting at 80% rather than 73 or whatever it is. Phoebe and Dog, of course, manager at Anderson has now joined us on the speaker panel. Phoebe, let's start with your initial impressions. It's, it's a three trillion shilling spending plan. What do you make of it? The budget is really challenging, especially at this time where the 3.3 trillion is an additional money that Kerry is supposed to collect. And as we know, at this point where our debt is at 8.2 trillion, so we still need to pay the debt, but at the same time, we are still adding to what is supposed to be collected. The economy and uh, the cost of living is going up, and we've seen complaints from the normal Mwanainchi, and so the government is planning to collect more taxes. When you look at the budget, there was not much that was introduced to now increase the revenue collection. That's it from me, Rama. That's a neat segue into the, the tax portion of, of our conversation, because given the macro environment in which you operate right, we're looking at, by some estimates, the worst drought we've seen in the region in the last 40 years. Farmers are struggling to find fuel and fertilizer. Households have had their incomes decimated, jobs lost, pay cuts inflicted on them. No thanks in small part to the pandemic, but of course, with an inflation surge coming, we're in a much weaker position to actually cope with that sort of economic hardship. And yet, this budget, especially on the finance side of it, on the tax side of it, there was absolutely nothing major with respect to tax cuts. Kwame, was, was there room for Koryatani to actually implement tax cuts, or is this just a case of him saying, look, I've got all this debt to pay. I need as much money as I can. Therefore, sorry, you're just going to have to make do. Well, there was. If you could, apl- you could apply tax cuts in a different way. So, for instance, my view about the tax cuts is there's nothing. So, let's start with VAT. There's nothing that essentially is uh, sacred about the 16%. And we think at the Institute of Economic Affairs that actually one of the things that could be done is that it could be reduced to 12 or put it on a glide path from 16 to 14 and within five years place it at 10. And, and then lock it there and expand the number of things for which the tax applies regardless. So stuff like that, I think they're just too timid. If you look at the way excise taxes are applied now, it's just become, be very creative by adding taxes to everybody. And their view is that raising the tax rates or expanding taxes into new things doesn't, when obviously the evidence shows, for instance, for beer, regardless, I'm neutral about this, but I think it's clear that for malt beer, they've actually passed the wrong side of the Lafar curve so that raising more taxes and adjusting is actually giving them less, less revenue. But they will not hear it. So yes, that's it. Options are there, but I think there's an obsession with closing that gap. And I think for us, I, t- I say this with respect in Kenya, taxation policy has been taken over by what the revenue administration thinks, and not necessarily what parliament, what citizens, and what's the most efficient way to collect taxes. So it's basically about meeting a year-by-year target as opposed to, say, a three-year uh, rolling plan in which you say, look, we'll close this budget uh, deficit, and it's not closing. Before I go to Nikhil on the same issue, for some of our, our listeners who may not be familiar with what the Laffer curve is, could you give us an economic crash course on that? Okay, so the Laffer curve is this argument that, look, you can design a tax system to say for any good or service for, if you have a 100% taxation of a good or service, people will not consume it, so your revenues will be zero. At the same time, if the tax uh, is zero, there'll be consumption, but revenues will not be achieved. So in between those two, if you put them on a X and Y axis, is a curve or some kind of line which tells you at one point at which the maximum taxes that can be extracted. So when I talk about the Lafar curve, it means that actually a point reaches where you can actually raise the tax rate and get less income 
because you'll actually crush consumption of that good and service. So if you look at beer, for instance, excise taxes have been applied in such a way that while they've risen quite a bit, I think by 11 or 12% over the last uh, five years, the amount of revenue that accrues to government is actually less if you take account of the fact that there's inflation, but also the nominal value has just been fixed for malt beer. So that's what uh, tells us that this. It's a conceptual argument, but actually you're seeing it in, in action. Okay. Nikhil, if there is room to cut, where do we start with these cuts? What would be the one thing or rather the top three things that you'd put tax cuts on, given the sort of economic headwinds that we're facing over the next 12 months? Just before I answer that, Rama, I, I think I just want to take on further from what Kwame was saying. As they continue to increase taxes and, and excise duty now seems to be the one the government is using, we're going to reach that stage where consumption is going to just die out. And I think there was a good example of it with Senator Kegg a few years ago when we raised the excise duty. And at one point, the people that were expected to buy that, that brew found it too expensive to do so. So the net effect was you lost the excise duty because sales dropped. You lost the VAT because sales dropped. You probably lost corporate tax because sales dropped. And you may even have lost PAYE because people had to be laid off. So uh, this constant increasing of taxes is not, I think, going to achieve what we want to achieve. And your question about where can we cut, I'm a firm believer that we should not be taxing earnings as much as we are, but taxing spending. And and I once got into trouble when we were introducing VAT in, in Uganda, and I said this at a seminar, that if I were a finance minister, I would bring direct taxes you know, down to 15, 10, 20, maybe even just 20%, and raise VAT. And, and that way, you're giving people the choice. If they want to get taxed, they will spend. If they don't, they don't. If I want to buy a Mercedes and you, you want to buy a Toyota, you, I have the choice. But if I don't have the disposable income, I can't do that. So I, I agree with Kwame that we should be looking towards bringing our VAT down from the current 16 to 14, 12, 10 at some stage. The other thing I would say, again, Kwame mentioned this, our tax policy has become just short-term, think one year ahead. And we cannot function as a country. Just take an analogy. At home, you try not to think just one year ahead. You're thinking about the future. How are we going to you know, buy a house? How are we going to have, have a pension to make sure that we're okay when we retire, etc.? The government is thinking one year at a time. We have a shortfall that we need to pay some debt. Therefore, let's put some taxes up. And then next year, they reverse the whole thing. And tax policy cannot work like that. We need certainty. And at the moment, Kenyan tax policy, there is no certainty at all. Also added to that, yesterday in the speech, and, and I haven't seen the finance bill, I don't know if it's out yet, but I remember many years when I was much younger, that on budget day, when you got the speech, you also got the finance bill. Yesterday, the cabinet secretary said, I am going to increase excise duty on various products by 10% excluding petroleum. Now, I don't know how many of you have had the pleasure of looking at the Excise Duty Act, but the later schedules of the schedules of the Act deal with each and every product that is subject or service that is subject to excise duty. It's a huge list. And you have left hanging at the end of your speech that some of those products, excise duty is going up by 10%. I'm told there's a huge panic in, 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 in businesses as to, is my product there or not? And that's not the way to have tax policy. We've got to rethink. We've got to move forward. Think five, ten years ahead. That's the only way this is going to really work. Thanks, Rama. Uh, in, 
Indeed, it certainly will be. Afibi, I'm going to come to you on the national tax policy because that has been sort of cast by Treasury as a sort of one-shot solution to provide that certainty that is desperately needed in this little corner of East Africa. But I should point out for the benefit of our listeners, um, if you actually go to Treasury's uh, website, ideally by now, um, as Nikhil said, you'd essentially have access to the finance bill and the budget books. Back in the day, we'd get this massive collection of books probably about you know a thousand pages each they'll basically detail exactly where the spending is supposed to go as we speak at the moment the budget books for 2022-2023 not out and also the finance bill has not been made public yet we know it's gone to parliament but it hasn't uh, been made public as yet which we'll get into that a little later the questions around transparency on public policy phoebe so the question around the national tax policy okoriatani mentioned it in passing in his budget statement yesterday but what must it do to actually provide the sort of certainty that is clearly very lacking at the moment? I'd say that the national tax policy is actually long overdue. It's one document that we've been waiting for for a very long time. And the national tax policy is expected just to enhance the coherence in the tax laws and just to ensure that tax laws and administrations they take the cognizant of the inputs of the stakeholders. I just concur with what Kwame and Nikki Hill say because you see, like excess duty, what has happened, it is being used as a protectionist tax. It is now in the financial uh, sector, the manufacturing sector. We see like it's going to be touching each and every area. And at this point, remember, the excess duty initially was supposed to be a sin tax. So the national tax policy will come and protect the stakeholders. And this will help us to come and agree on things like, do we reduce the VAT? Do we reduce the PYE? Because I believe if they reduce the PYE, which can be captured in the national tax policy and say, let's reduce the PYE to give at least an upper hand for people to consume, then increase the indirect taxes. Those are things that the national tax policy is supposed to come and do. And one thing we are hoping is that it will be rolled out sooner than later. If possible, if it can come out this month or even beginning of next month before the end of uh, the government financial year, that will be good. So that's my comment because that, this will now come and help us capture things. Remember, minimum tax just was thrown in, then it dropped out. The excess duty, we have some that is being introduced, not sure which product because the CS, the cabinet secretary just mentioned just about that there are some products that are going to be exercisable. So we are really waiting for that. Thank you, Rama. Do you think he'll actually deliver on, on that particular national tax policy on time? Because to use another example that you know individuals like yourself and Nikhil who've been around in the tax space for a while will know, years ago, we were highly anticipating a change to the, an entirely new rather, Income Tax Act. That bill supposedly was supposed to go to Parliament. It has never seen the light of day. So in that sort of context, with a finance ministry that says one thing but does a complete opposite, I mean, does this national tax policy have any hope of actually seeing the light of day? So Rama, that's, that's very interesting because the income tax bill, we've been waiting for it for years, and the experts, and as experts, we sent our amendments and what we needed changed, what we need to see it. For the national tax policy, I believe that it will be out soon because it's been a push that has been there from the industry. And as well, not only from the stakeholders, the government itself, there sometimes they come and implement some laws, but they don't fly through because 
the stakeholders go to court. On the other hand, the government is not able to raise the revenue as they expected. So I am hopeful that this time they will actually uh, release it soon because I believe it's not going to be too detailed because you're just starting the journey with the national tax policy. So it's not going to be like the income tax bill that they wanted to change almost everything in the bill. So that's my hope. Nick Hill may comment on this. He's been in the industry longer than I am. Nick Hill. Yeah, I think I had hair when uh, when they started talking about national tax policy. Look, the, the analogy you gave, Rama, of, of the income tax bill first came out in 2018 and it has not seen the light of day. It's important because our current income tax law in this country dates back to the 60s and, and it's just not suitable for 2021 business, 2022 business practices. So we need to do this. We need to be proactive. And we said we were going to do it as part of the tax reform package. We changed the VAT Act. We changed the Excise Duty Act. We brought in a Tax Procedures Act. We brought in a Miscellaneous Fees and Levies Act, which is all. But the key one, income tax, is still out there. And as I've always said, it, it has more patches on it than probably Microsoft Office does. It's unbearably difficult to read. And it's such a simple, low-hanging fruit for the government and they're just not taking it for some reason. And I have no idea why. Thank you. Let's get back to the question around settling tax disputes. I've seen quite a few lawyers who've joined us on the space. So I'm pretty sure they're going to weigh in the next uh, 30 or 40 minutes or so. There was an interesting proposal that the finance CS put forward. And he's basically saying that litigants have to deposit 50% of the tax and dispute in escrow before they appeal any judgment from the tax tribunal. Now, my layman reading of that is that it's almost akin to me saying that in the event that I have a dispute with my neighbor over where, say, the boundary between our shambas lie, I need to provide a monetary deposit equivalent to the value of our shambas in order to be able to access justice. Or to use a Karocha example fairly recently, that would essentially mean that the brew would have to deposit something like 11 billion shillings plus before they can access justice. Kwame, what did you make of that proposal? Because at at face value, from a layman perspective, it sounds like a backdoor route to try and limit individuals, companies' access to the justice system. And it's essentially also a bit of a fib because it doesn't address the main problem, which the finance CS flags, when he said, in his words, the process of settling tax disputes takes too long. Right. Okay, so yeah, that was just a curious thing for us to start with. Yes, if you have a dispute and the dispute is still in court uh, and you all accept that you're a country of laws, then it's, it's as if you're told to serve half the sentence regardless of whether you're innocent or not and then get it back when a decision is made. But I think it's a reflection, the political economy here is a reflection of what Kenya's tax administration and tax policy have been fused to the extent that we are trying to make every tax dispute look like there's a presumption of fault and therefore the tax administration should be made as convenient as is possible for the tax administration. I mean, if you're sitting as a tax administrator, that's good enough for you because you claim you already collected that. I disagree completely. Even as a commercial instrument, that's terrible because they say that you'll keep it there. We know that cases take years. And what happens after that is you'll receive in the 30 days. I mean, we've always got promises of that receipt. So it's definitely just basically some kind of money grab. And the point is, if your money is out there, you actually are under pressure because that money is not available for business. You'd be under pressure to negotiate any terms to settle it. And that's partly part of trying to actually squeeze, so to speak, business people. And it's unacceptable. In addition to the fact that I've seen lawyers 
who should know better than this because they've been in arbitration and all that who think it's patently unconstitutional. Nikhil and Phoebe, this is where I think your experience comes in because I, I know you've both, you've both worked essentially with the tax tribunal in a bit more detail. When you have something like this in play, assuming for the sake of argument that this actually does get implemented, it becomes law. Because we're also looking at a situation where VAT refunds are an absolute nightmare to get. This essentially at face value, this looks like a lot of people just say, what's the point of actually going to challenge anything in court if it's just going to turn into a, another trap for whatever little capital we can get our hands on? Nickel? I, I totally, totally, totally against this. I do think it's unconstitutional because I think our constitution is quite clear. We have a right to justice. And uh, look, you go to the tribunal, you win some, you lose some. But if you lose, why do you then need to deposit 50%? I mean, 50%. And you gave the example of Karachi. I mean, if they had to deposit 11 billion shillings, that's the end of the business. And that's going to happen to a lot of people who may believe that they're right in the stance they've taken, but are, are being forced to, to knock out 50% of the assessment or disputed part of the assessment. And uh, it's not there for working capital. Now, the devil is, of course, in the detail. Without the finance bill, we don't really know how this is intended to work. But Mr. the cabinet secretary said nothing about interest while it sits there. He said you will get refunded in 30 days. And I think when we started this discussion, we talked about supplier debt, which has been going on for years and years and years. So once he says 30 days, does he really mean 30 days? And so how long is it going to take me to get my money back if I'm in that position? I think it is very wrong what has been suggested and it, it will be a deterrent and it will push people towards the wrong sort of practices as a result of this. So, yeah, I'm totally anti it and I do think it's unconstitutional, though, as Kwame said, we've got a lot of lawyers on this meet. So maybe at some stage they can tell us what they think, but I, I don't think it's part of the Constitution. Either. Thanks. Yeah, certainly not. Um, Phoebe, do you want to weigh in on this? Yeah, for me, it's very interesting because we all know that the, there's an alternative dispute resolution. And from the statistics of what Kerry provided is that last year, or up to February 2022, they had solved 450 cases. And from the statistics also, they say that last year they were able, through alternative dispute resolution, they were able to collect 34 billion shillings. So this is where, again, my question comes in. If they are able to sort cases in the alternative dispute resolution, why then are they introduced this particular section where they're saying that they'll require a taxpayer to make a deposit of 50%? First thing, they, it will cause cash flow issues to the taxpayer whose dispute has not even been resolved and the probability of even having that KRA are not right and you've already deposited your money, that brings an issue. Two, the second thing for me where this becomes a problem is where if you are going to solve the case on the same day, assume this particular section flies in. Why 30 days? In 30 days, why don't you then give me back with an interest? Because you took the taxpayer's money, then pay back the money with an interest. And the fear at this case is where, remember, a taxpayer is even not supposed to go take a loan to start paying taxes. Why would you go take a loan to start paying taxes? And at this point, you've not even been proven whether you're doing wrong or you are on the wrong. And the only thing the government will do is to keep your money. They should first rethink about that particular section 
before even they implement it. And that's it from me, Rama. It almost sounds like another liquidity trap, almost along the same vein of other horrible ideas, like the so-called Robin Hood tax that was it? Henry Rotich was financier at the time and he, he proposed it in parliament and well thankfully that completely died and went absolutely nowhere. But it does raise issues about the quality of policy making and policy thinking that's coming out of treasury, doesn't it Kwame? Do we have competent people making decisions here or is this just a case of well politicians just don't want to make the hard decisions to clean up the mess they've made over the last decade? Well, I think it's just a reflection of what the Revenue Service and Treasury sitting together think the average business person is. There's very little trust of the business person and the belief almost that actually they should use more coercive methods to reach their target. So it's partly a desperation to close that budget gap. But the other one is just basically the belief that, yes, we need to use every single piece of coercive power that we have to do that, to, to get people to pay. It's not very creative. And my view is actually, I think it's part of the problem in the, the enforcement methods that are actually used force people not to negotiate but to go to courts because the KRA itself has a, let me say, uh, in my assessment, has a very bad record because of the reversals that take place here and there. So they're trying to cut that short by actually making people desperate and stuff like that. And yes, what that means is you'll be funding government operations for no income and while you have an obligation to, and the opportunity cost of keeping, say, billions or even millions of shillings, even hundreds of thousands, whatever it would be, I don't think it just uh, makes it. So the reversal and actually the taxation policy should be about how do you negotiate, what applies, and to what extent they can take penalties, because penalties themselves sometimes make even taxes really, really difficult to pay. So yes, we are in a very inefficient equilibrium. Okay, I'm going to stick with you, Kwame, for my next focus, the, the Petroleum Development Fund, and the way that has been utilized turned essentially into a slush fund for Treasury to, in the name of, quote-unquote, trying to stabilize fuel prices. Do you think that Okoretani basically missed a huge opportunity yesterday to kill two birds with one stone. On one hand, eliminate this inefficient fund because it's clearly not serving a, a structured purpose, but at the same time, institute tax cuts in fuel because I would achieve the exact same effect of lowering prices and keep trying to keep at least a lid um, on inflation in the short term. Yeah, that's it. There's this obsession with accumulating taxes and on a year by year basis. That's why the tax code changes every year. I mean, you have a tax code that changes every year, like like the one we have in Kenya. I think that was part of the reason they don't have an incentive to include the tax policy, because obviously that would tie their hands. Nobody wants their hands tied regardless. But on the Petroleum Development Fund, I mean, it's just clear that it's going to bust, right? It's very, very clear that in the next six months or so, it's going to crash because government won't have the money to continue to support it. And my view is yesterday should have been a good opportunity to actually lay it down by telling people, look, this thing is unaffordable. At the same time, it's making petroleum look cheaper than it really is, and then trying to kick the ball into the future for whoever comes after him. But usually it's easier to kick the ball into the future for whoever comes after him. Whoever it is will be in real trouble. Uh, but there is, there is room to essentially cut taxes on petroleum, isn't there, Nikhil? Because it's, we've got all these taxes that are apply on every litre of petrol, diesel, kerosene that we buy from excise to VAT, railway development levy. There's a lot of fat, for lack of a better word, to trim on fuel prices without that necessarily punching a massive hole in government revenue coffers, isn't there? Yeah, I, I agree. I think uh, it's about 56% of the pump is, is actually government taxes. Yes, we, we can reduce them. We should reduce them. This high price of, of petroleum products has a real knock-on effect on the economy, and it makes the cost of doing business in Kenya much, much higher. I, I, I guess on the other side of the coin is the fact that the government is so desperate for cash at the moment that no one really wants to make a decision to cut any tax. I mean, that's not the right reason for not cutting taxes, but it's almost as though 
no one is willing to sign on the dotted line and say, guys, let's cut the taxes. And I, I think we said earlier, there is a lot of evidence around the world and here in Kenya that when you reduce tax, you do see a pickup in overall revenue. We saw that in 92 through 94, 95, when we reduced corporate income tax to the current 30. And if you look at a, a, a graph of the revenue collections, it sort of went up at a 45 degree angle. And, and that was purely a factor that people thought, well, at that rate of tax, it makes more sense to comply than to evade and potentially end up in committee prison. So I really do think that the government is missing the opportunity to bring things down. Now, part of it could be that we've just gone out of control on our expenditure. The, the, the servicing of the debt is, is too high. I think it's now higher than the civil service wage bill. So with all that, the government is probably thinking, well, if I cut taxes, I'm losing a source of revenue. I think a brave government should cut taxes, and I think they will see an increase in revenue over the short to medium term. Indeed. Just for, for the benefit of our listeners, the, the argument that was made by Treasury uh, in response to a proposal last December to cut uh, the VAT rate, for example, and petroleum products in half, down from 8% to 4%, and of course, on, on a bunch of other things as well, plus suspending the inflationary adjustment of, on excise duty and petroleum tax. The argument the Treasury made at the time is that if you add up the total tax law from all of these things, they're essentially looking at a whole, a revenue hole of about 37.1 um, billion Kenyan shillings. Now, for context, that's roughly twice the entire budget allocation for the judiciary for the next financial year. Because the judiciary as a whole have an allocation of around 18 billion. Parliament have allocated themselves roughly 50 billion shillings for the operations. So that's a sort of revenue gap, for lack of a better word, that we're looking at. Phoebe, when you're interacting with your clients and, and just looking out over the next 12 months, it's a rough macro environment. You've got the job losses, the income losses that we've spoken about. Agriculture will be basically on its knees with this drought that we're dealing with. Uh, nasty inflation is coming through from both food and fuel as well. What are your planning assumptions around the sort of tax policy that you're expecting to come through from Treasury for the next 12 months? Um, do you expect the next government to essentially be at the point where they're saying, look, we've got all these obligations to pay on debt and keeping operations running, so we essentially have to stick to the same spending plan? Or do you think we might actually have room for some serious changes in tax policy? That's very interesting. I, I, I'll start by, by saying this. Every election year, we always see that they, there's a sort of a drop in every election year. And it's very interesting because if you look at, I'll just mention the, the, the recent past. In 2013, if you look at that, the GDP went down by, you went to 3.80. In 2017, 3.82. And we have two challenges now. Firstly, it is an election year. Two, the government is struggling with the debt. Three, the government this time did not take a bold step just to say, this is how we are going to bring in the revenue. So for especially the business environment, they will experience a time where KRA will be very aggressive. That's what we are expecting. Aggressive with their revenue audit because we've, we've seen them Every time they are not able to collect the revenue well, they get really aggressive with the revenue audits. So that's one thing we're expecting to see this year. And remember last year in the Finance Act 2021, 
they introduced a lot of laws and in regards to the multinationals. So that means the transfer pricing space is one area where they'll be very aggressive. Looking, have you done your reporting? Is your transfer pricing document well? Whatever you're charging uh, in your intercompany transaction, is it reasonable? So that's one area we are seeing where the government will target in collections, especially for multinationals. For the local business, already the local business, the monarchy is struggling. And so what would the government do if it was brave enough to do? Uganda has done it. Remember there was presumptive tax that was introduced in 2018, where they say there will be presumptive tax, but it was never implemented because it was hard to implement it. So Uganda did the same thing and they said, we will not issue you with a business license before you tell us whether you paid taxes. So that is the way we are seeing either the government may go the aggressive way to even collect taxes from the Juakali sector, to be able to get the, the, the revenue from the Juakali sector. From statistics, they say that there are like 9 million uh, people who have been registered for tax, but very few people tend to pay taxes. So the question is, will the government now even go down to the Juakali sector and now tell them we need the taxes? So three areas, uh, as I conclude, I'll say, I see the government being aggressive with the multinationals. The next area where they'll be aggressive will be now the Juakali sector. The government may really be aggressive in collecting tax from them. And then the last area where the government has started well is now the digital space, the e-commerce. Just talking about the e-commerce, in Africa, we have seen Nigeria having a total revenue in the digital space in 2021 was coming to $6.7 billion. That was the e-commerce revenue. Then the digital services were $3.5 billion. Compared to Kenya, last year Kenya had digital uh, services revenue at 680 million, and then the e-commerce revenue was coming to 1.8 billion. So that's an area also the government may consider exploring to see if they'll be able to collect more revenue. Thank you, Rama. But what? But what? What extra? Just before I bring in Josie Yama into the conversation, what are the quote-unquote unexploited places within e-commerce? that can still, quote-unquote, be taxed by the government. I already, and this put my personal biases out there, I already thought the digital services tax was a really weird idea. And even implementing it was a bit dodgy, especially in a market where you've got this growing interest in creating intellectual property and putting it online and essentially making sure this consumption that goes out into the world. And yet, here we are trying to impose taxes on something that, on paper, seems like it would essentially limit the growth of this space. So where else can, can taxes be applied? Uh, for now, I'd say where the taxes can be applied well is now in the Juakali sector. Because the Juakali sector, for a very long time, the government has really struggled. And it's not only our government. We've seen in Africa that has been a very big challenge. They've struggled collecting tax from the Juakali sector. So the thing is for them to decide how do we implement and ensure that even the Juakali sector pays taxes. And I'll say what Nikhil said, is that by them reducing the tax rate so that it can be friendly even to this Juakali sector person, as much as you're telling them you pay uh, 1% per month, are you telling them they pay in the 
turnover? Is it the net profit? So those are things and the regulations that the government needs to implement. Hence why the national tax policy will be very important for even now the stakeholders to come in. I know you've mentioned about the digital space. So for the digital space, it's a space that is growing at a very high rate. The government introduced the rate. Remember in 2020, they said, say they had just put that there's a digital service tax. In 2021, they came and corrected that and said it will only apply to the non-residents companies. And at this point, these are people like Netflix, where you saw them increasing the prices, the DSTV, because the government felt like you're actually making an income in Kenya that is not taxed. Hence, they decided, let's tax the income and the revenue that you're making in Kenya. So I think for the DST, for me, I'd say for the non-resident, that was a good move just to ensure that we also don't have the tax leakage because there was a lot of revenue leakage from Kenya from the now the non-resident companies that were in Kenya or have set up their entities in Kenya. I hope I've answered your question, Rama. Yep, yep, you definitely have. To bring in Josephine Yamai, she's the budget coordinator at the Coast Regional Hub, also the co-founder of the KE Budget Talk platform. Josie, you've been listening patiently to, to the discussion we've been having here for the last 40 plus minutes. What what are your initial impressions of, of some of the ideas we've discussed, but also the spending plan that Mr. Ayatani put out here? Thank you, Rama. So I would want to say that according to me, the budget is very unrealistic looking at the revenue and the public debt, the expenditure proposals, and also the means to raise the, the revenue. For example, trying to look at the total revenue that, that the government is proposing to raise in the, in the incoming financial year of around $2.2 trillion from the ordinary revenue. Uh, th- that is definitely so unrealistic given the historical shortfalls in the collection of the revenue at the same time. And you know what this means, because we have seen events whereby if the government doesn't meet the revenue, then they're introducing supplementary budgets. And uh, also trying to look at the GDP ratio to public debt ratio, it's still very unrealistic, trying to move from 8.6 to around 6.2. That is on a tune of, you know, Uh, 1.02 trillion Kenyan shillings to around 869. Still very unrealistic, uh, given also the historical failure by the government to be able to meet their taxes. And this then brings the question of service delivery and also the tax burden to the to the common citizens. So this is something that I would say the budget is over ambitious in terms of revenue collection, in terms of the spending proposals that we, we have been able to see. That is my contribution for now. And also not to fail to mention on the taxation proposal that they have uh, put in place. We'll still be able to confirm that after we see the, the finance bill. We have seen the income tax being proposed to be at 40.8% from a tune of 30%. And then the VAT at 3.9% from 18%. So basically, the big question that we want to ask ourselves, then, then whose budget is this? Is it benefiting the, the government? Is it beneficial to the citizens or who's really the budget is? Thank you. Josie, with respect to county level taxes, because one of the things that I know SMEs and, and manufacturers and even farmers complain about a great deal is the fact that counties impose all sorts of ridiculous charges just in terms of getting goods across from one county to the next. 
or in terms of, let's see, like in agriculture, for example, where smack in the middle of a drought, county governments are still going to be demanding cess tax. And that price essentially just gets loaded on to the end consumer, raising the price of food in dire circumstances. What is it that we also need to do on, on the county tax side to, to make sure that what we get at that level is actually useful? for businesses, for SMEs, to allow them to give them the fiscal breathing room they need to grow. Thank you, Rama, for your question. Yes, I do agree with you on the issue of the businesses at the county level. But remember, the tax policies they emanate from the national government, even though at the county level, they are able to raise revenue through their own source revenue. But most of the policies, I think it's very clear in the Article 209 of the Constitution on some of the sources that they are supposed to raise the revenue from. And I, I think the challenge of the, the micro and small businesses actually should be also addressed from the, from the national government, for example. And this has everything to do with credits. And also the national government trying to come up with policies because one of the roles of the national treasury is to be able to guide the, the counties on how to raise uh, revenue and, and ensuring at the same time there are no policies which are contradicting and so overburdening to the businesses and the common citizens. So I think this is an issue that the national treasury needs to continue building the capacity of the counties. And I think sometimes last year, uh, national treasury and C CRA, they, they were going down to the counties trying to train them on some of the taxation uh, policy because we have seen most of the counties introduce some of the revenue raising measures which could be uh, diverse and therefore I think through that capacity building uh, the counties then they are able to strike the balance on some of the charges that they impose. I would just give you a very good example. I come from Mombasa County and I would tell you it is very expensive to do business in Mombasa compared to when you go and do in the neighboring counties such as Kelifi or, or Kwale counties because of the rates. So then the question of uh, should we have standard rates when it comes to revenue collection? That is a discussion that we, then we need to introduce, even if the county is trying to set a certain target of revenue collection through their revenue raising measures, that is a finance bill, then where do we strike the balance to ensure at least there is a standardized kind of raising revenue? I, I understand the dynamics that exist. We have the rural counties and we have we also have the semi-urban counties and completely uh, urban counties. So this is a discussion we really need to have so that at the end of the day, we are able to safeguard the, the, the small businesses in the county. Phoebe and Nikhil, I want you to weigh in on this. With respect to county-level taxes, what does the national tax policy need to do? Look, Rama, when we went into institution, uh, you will remember that counties came up with all sorts of things that they were going to tax on. If you take a chicken across the border of one county to the other, you'll get taxed. Even today, if you've got a van which has your uh, logo on it, you cross a, a county border, you have to pay a levy. This, of course, is adding to the tax burden of our businesses as well. You can't necessarily blame the counties. They're supposed to get, uh, at least currently in the Constitution, at a minimum of 15% of central revenues. They're getting more than that. But they don't get it on, on a regular basis. They, they, you know, things get held up. The central government can't pay. So in order to finance all their own things, they're looking at other ways of doing it. Unfortunately, the net, net effect of that is that it becomes more expensive to do business, particularly when you're doing it cross-county. Phoebe? Uh, thank you, Nicole. So my view on this is that the decisions in regards to tax should be at a national level. If you allow the counties to make um, 
their own decision in regards to the taxes and the, the other levies that are levied. As Nikhil said, is that the business space will be very expensive. And once the National Treasury and the Finance Committee and the stakeholders sit and make a decision on taxes, that is what should be implemented countrywide. Because if we allow every county to make their own decision, then it will be chaotic. That for sure I can tell you it will be chaotic. I'll contribute on something like in South Africa, for example. We have seen South Africa implementing tax and saying we are reducing our corporate tax rate. And if you look at last year, they reduced their corporate tax rate and it's now at 27, 27%. And they say they'll be reducing every year. Every two years, sorry, the, the corporate tax rate will be reduced. So if that can be implemented at the national level, the county level, all they need to do is now just take the law that is made and implement. Having each and every county making their own decision on how they will collect levies and taxes, we will end up not having any investor coming in because you cannot be able to cross to another county to do a business. You have to be levied. You cannot be able to buy even the agricultural products just passing through. They are charged the sales charge out of one county. They go in another county. They are charged another sales. Assume you're coming from Mombasa all the way to Eldoret. How many counties will you have paid? And that is the big question. Hence why we need the national tax policy. But my view would be all the tax uh, issues, the tax policy, they need to be implemented at the national level. Then now they need to be, the decision to be made at the national level and then now implemented across the counties. Indeed. Where are we getting to? 9.01 p.m. out in this little corner of East Africa. Thank you very much for your time on this particular space. In case you're joining us a little late, we're dissecting the 2022-2023 spending plan that the Kenyan Finance Minister, Okoritani, presented to legislators yesterday. Still quite a bit of detail missing. The finance bill hasn't come out into the public just yet. The budget books have also not yet um, been made 100% public so far. We know that these documents have been moved over to Parliament, but for the rest of us, for taxpayers, our employees in those two institutions clearly have not yet met their end of the bargain as far as transparency is concerned. We've been speaking with Kwame Wino, the CEO at of at IEA Kenya, Josephine Yamai, Budget Coordinator, the Coast Regional Budget Hub, Nikhil Heroes, a partner at Cody Africa, and Fibin Jogga, a manager at Anderson as well. I'm going to open up the floor in the next couple of um, minutes for questions, feedback, comments um, coming in from you who've been listening to us for quite a while now. There's one interesting DM here coming in from Duncan Otieno, and he says, look, in, in his view, the budget is unrealistic and really, really ambitious. We do not have a revenue problem. What we have is an expenditure problem. At best, we can tone down our consumption as a country since we're consuming far more than we generate. This is something I know we've discussed for quite a few years now. We do have an expenditure problem. But in the current political atmosphere, even stretching that out to 2023, is, is it possible for us, do you foresee a situation where we might actually reduce our expenditure without necessarily being forced to do so by our creditors? Yes, so Duncan is right and that uh, Kenya's problem is not a revenue problem. Kenya's problem is actually an expenditure problem. If you always have a credit card, you'll always be able to spend as much as you can until somebody who's actually managing your card blocks it or actually tells you to close that gap. 
I don't think we will. For instance, Kenyans support subsidies without realizing that the subsidies mean the government just picks taxes in one way and then redistributes it to another group of people to do their consumption. So that's difficult. And politically, it's difficult anywhere in the world. The only thing we think would be a fairer one, which is basically like splitting the difference, is actually to cap budgets. By saying that we'll cap expenditure, say, for instance, we thought at the Institute of Economic Affairs that government could have capped expenditure two and a half years ago at 2.7, 2.8 trillion. And then you allow for efficiencies by consolidation, preventing excessive spending, cutting down on uh, wastage and stuff like that, which is possible. And many people who have a sensible accounting knowledge say that they could save the government of Kenya half a trillion shillings by just making cuts and, and, and whatever off bad procurement and competitive procurement and just losses that occur from one way or the other. So I actually think that that is possible, but it doesn't get done because governments in Kenya and the Jubilee government especially have the view that they think that the more spending they do or the bigger the budgets are, the more proficient they've been and the more they love the public. And you know that the public also wants government to spend on all their pet projects. So we want more stadiums, we want more stuff here and there and all that. So that's the big problem. So politically, the economics of it is clear. The politics of it is what is difficult and obviously the deftness uh, that is required to sell it to the public, but also to make uh, cuts is something that's going to be difficult. So the only way we do is it if there's a crash or if somebody refuses to lend to us and then we have to pull back, which tends to be very painful. Okay, Kwame, I'm just going to come back to you a bit. There's there's also another question coming through from, I believe this is Collins Washira. He's asking uh, for feedback from the panel on the plan by the government to pump cash in to try and tackle unemployment through the Kazi Imtani program. How realistic is it? And does this actually deliver a, a quantifiable, a meaningful return to taxpayers? Kwame and Josie and Phoebe, if you want to weigh in on that. All right, let me go quickly. I think Kazi Imtani was, was actually not a job creation program per se, but it was actually a support program that was meant to act as a stimulus when Kenya faced a shock from COVID-19. So it is not measured for its cost effectiveness in terms of creating those jobs. It was measured in terms of how much does it make sure that aggregate consumption does not collapse because of people who couldn't get jobs. And of course, in this country, there's a belief that if jobs don't occur, crime will happen. So you try to target youth by asking them to do stuff here and there. But does that actually have any merit to it? Because I know we always tend to frame it in terms of, or if you have a a huge population of young people who are not doing anything productive, therefore you have a a massive crime problem. But does that actually make sense? Do do we have data to back it up? Actually, no. We, We examined this last year. And of course, it's one of those, what do you call it, urban legends that are very strong in Kenya. And we hear people say it again and again, that look, one of the reasons we need to get youth to actually be occupied, or rather employment is a way of getting youth preoccupied so that they don't go stealing and, and mugging people. That's not true, necessarily. And in Kenya's case, it's actually very, very weak as to be. The reason you need people to, to work is actually productivity is a good thing <laughs> and expanding public welfare, not as a police program. Because otherwise, what it means then is just close the police force and distribute the money that you give to the police force to Kenyan youth and see what the difference would be, right? That's a ridiculous claim. So it's a ridiculous claim. Urban legions are very difficult to, to, to beat. So yes, that's part of what the the selling of Kazim Tani was about. Indeed. Um, I'm pretty sure there's, there's a program on economic fallacies that I know you guys at IA worked on, which I found pretty interesting. I'm not sure if all of that has been published yet, but I'm pretty sure once it's out, it, it'll make for very interesting reading. So we can definitely share it with all of us here. Nikhil, what, where do you stand on this whole business of how we should essentially spend spend what, what little resources we have? Because we clearly can't continue this path of fullizing ourselves to infinity and growth. So how do you see things playing out? Do we end up being forced to cut spending by creditors or do we do it ourselves? It, it's an age-old question, Rama. The, the thing here is that 
in reality, since 2007-8, the country has been in one form of coalition or another. So coalition governments in, invariably result in, in, in increased expenditure. In the middle, we got devolution. And as we've already said, that also in some ways increased uh, expenditure. I actually think that we need to focus a little bit more on, on wastage. And by wastage, I, I mean two things. One, clearly, they're just downright corrupt practices that we need to put a stop to. But just simple wastages. I, I mean, you know, what, what has the last two years taught us about COVID? We can do, as we're doing now, a lot of things just electronically. And yet last year we sent, I don't know how many MPs or MCAs to Dubai to attend a conference for what? I mean, that could have been done online here. So we, we're, we're unfortunately in a position where a, a, a lot of our leaders believe that when they're in that position, they, they're allowed to do what they want. And, and I think we, we need some discipline here. We need to control government expenditure, particularly in terms of wastage and, 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 and corruption. And even the president announced, what was it, last year, that two billion shillings a, a, a year or day or whatever it is he said is disappearing in corruption. Put a stop to that and the equation will change completely. So that's one of the things I think we should be thinking. I should remind all our listeners, you, you can DM your questions to either the Mwango Capital account or to myself, or you can essentially just put it under the pinned tweet on the Mwango Capital account, and we'll get to those um, as they come in. Phoebe, this one comes to you. Interesting question coming in on the Mwango account. Should the government explore taxing diaspora remittances with a view to trying to raise uh, more money to try and close the, the fiscal deficit? That's an interesting question. If the government decides to go the route of taxing the diaspora remittance, I think one of the questions would be, what is the use for the money? Because some may argue and say, I am actually sending this money to come and pay a hospital bill. I'm sending the money to come and do the basic needs. And if you realize, especially when you're doing a transfer and RTGS, they always ask you, you write the reason why you're transferring the money. This is a double-edged sword. One, it can actually help the government collect more, uh, increase their revenue, because once they tax that, that means that they'll be able to actually get more taxes. But at the same time, what happens where now the people in diaspora start feeling like, I don't need them to send money back. Remember, the diaspora team or the diaspora family, all they've been doing, they've been sending a lot of money back to the country, and that is what is causing there to be a circulation of the money. So it's a double-edged sword. You introduce the taxes, they stop sending the money. You introduce the taxes, they tell you it's for medical purposes. So how do you determine whether it is an income or not an income? And, and on top of that, I should point out that over the last, I think, five plus years, we've seen diaspora remittances, at least according to data from the central bank, diaspora remittances have become the biggest single source of dollar inflows coming into the economy. So if you're essentially going to try and tax that revenue stream, it, it doesn't just have implications on the tax side. It also has implications on the exchange rate side as well, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, so correct. Yeah. No, Rama, I was going to say, look, you, you're right. Diaspora remittances have have in some years actually even exceeded our total export earnings. You tax income or you tax spending. And in a sense, diaspora remittance is neither of the two. It, it isn't a source of income for anyone. It's simply, and by and large, it's a Kenyan abroad sending money back to support his family. 
and, and that isn't a taxable activity. But you're absolutely right. If we were to do that and it started to dry up, then we would have a huge forex problem as well, including shilling, that, which is already depreciating, but would depreciate much, much more. So, yeah, I, I don't think you can tax it. I don't think it's a form of income either. So on, on what basis would you tax it? Indeed, that is a million-dollar question, isn't it? Uh, Josie, I know you wanted to say something around the quotable share of revenue that we're sending over to the counties. It, it, it happens relatively late, the huge acrimonious fights around this. Thank you, Rama. When you look at the budget uh, that the state was just read the other day, the counties have been allocated 370 uh, billion Kenyan shillings. And most of the time we've asked ourselves, what is the county doing with the money that, 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 that they are being given before they demand more? But it's a question of the services. The population is not in Nairobi at the central. The population is at the counties. And last year we saw conversion of four conditional grants when there was stalemate in the Senate concerning the third revenue allocation formula that had been proposed by the CRA. And one of the grants, which has been very imperative, especially in the health sector, we know that health is almost fully devolved because the counties are handling from level one to around level five hospitals in the counties. So there's a grant, the level five hospital grant that was being given to the counties that hosts level five hospitals. And I will give an example of Mombasa, the entire coast regional counties with the coast general or rather the provincial hospital. And we've seen an event whereby counties were added around 50 billion Kenyan shillings. But are we really asking ourselves how this amount was arrived at? Because the conversion of the conditional grant, it was initially going to 13 counties and now it is now being divided over the 47 counties. What happens to, to the cost of offering those services in the counties? And we have also been able to see the weaknesses that comes with the, the grants that come from the development partners in the county, at, at the county level. And not to uh, forget to mention also the challenges that the county face when it comes to the, the, the cash flow, the process of procurement and the cash flow at the county level. So I, I think going forward, and I think the parliament still has uh, something to do about it, especially on the money that is coming to the counties. I, I also saw that there was a proposal that the counties should clear the pendant bills before the year ends. So the big question is how, how can we fast track the process then of requisition of funds by the time uh, that those funds are moving from the national treasury to the point of service delivered at the county level because these are really been a challenge that is affecting most of the counties. Maybe we could uh, hear some of the people weighing in because when it comes to that, this is a purely question of equity when it comes to uh, distribution of resources. Thank you. Indeed, it does raise an interesting question. The, the finance minister says you've got to clear that's what roughly four. Basically, he's saying government needs to find four billion dollars and pay that off within the next sixty-ish days. But where's that money if you can't actually pay four billion dollars in supplier debt and you haven't been able to pay that for the last year, two years, however long it is? Then. Or are you going to magically find $4 billion in a very short period of time? There's an interesting question that's come up here with regards to the shilling. This is from Hilary Onyango. Does Treasury have any plans to mitigate the effects of the shilling, which is having an adverse effect on our foreign debts? Or, what is another way, what should be done to mitigate the effects of a depreciating shilling on our debt service obligations, especially our foreign debt service obligations? All right. Okay, first, let me just start with that. I can never say this enough. I think there's nothing in economic school that says that the depreciating currency is by itself a bad thing. However, as you've all mentioned, having a depreciating currency when you have external debt obviously has servicing obligations. <clears throat> but it's a double-edged sword as well. 
because one of the things that would happen is if the Kenyan currency were actually to depreciate sufficiently, for instance. So last year I was somewhere in Diani for, for a meeting and I met people who'd come from some other part of the world, I think Spain or some part of Southern Europe. And their view was that they only spent uh, one third of their holiday in sub-Saharan Africa because Kenya was expensive. The dollar was too strong. So they say we could still find the beach experience in Tanzania. And at that time they claimed it was about 18, 19%. This guy was an economist. He was a banker rather. So he, 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 he said that. So while there are certain things that speak for Kenya, the strength of the currency in as much as it affects debt servicing, it also does affect actually the ability to export both services and goods. So we have to be circumspect in arguing as if there's something about our pride. There's nothing about having a strong currency that comes from plain economics. So that is a political argument. So if depreciation were to happen, which is long overdue, at the Institute of Economic Affairs, we've expected it for five years. Part of it being that in, I think in 2018, uh, all currencies in East Africa, all the currencies in East Africa, even if you leave aside the political problems that South Sudan had, depreciated by between, I think, nine and a half to actually 22% for some of these countries. And one of the things that happened is the Kenyan currency kept strong. Whether it was kept artificially strong is a debate for another day. I suspect something was keeping it strong. So the Kenyan currency was too strong. And we saw for the first time in one quarter, two years ago, Uganda exported more goods into Kenya than Kenya did. Uh, back there, because Ugandan goods based on Kenya shillings was extremely competitive. So we have to know that a depreciated shilling or wherever place we wish to anchor the shilling itself has effects one way. It's not cost-free to keep a strong currency. It actually has significant effects on, on the ability to export and the competitiveness of Kenyan goods and services. So if you ask me, I think the Kenyan shilling should be allowed to float long overdue. And if it does, it will just fix itself. Will debt have to be paid? Certainly. But one of the things that will happen is there'll be more dollars coming into the country because Kenyan goods, Kenyan services will be a little cheaper. Thanks. Nikhil, I know you wanted to jump in just before I, I fired off the question to, to, to Kwame. So please come in and then after that, I'll go to Phoebe. Yeah, I was um, going to come in on this thing about the diaspora and, and, and whether we should tax them. As I said, it, it isn't income. So what, what are you really taxing? And in my view, what it really does is it's a sense of support for families back home. And the minute you start taxing it, you can rest assured that it ain't coming back home. And, and that's not what we want. So there is absolutely no reason to tax diaspora remittances to the country because A, they're not income and they're actually designed to support in good Kenyan culture to support the extended family. And, and I think that should just be allowed to continue. Thanks very much. Phoebe? Yeah, so uh, just to add to what Nikhil has said is that remember the diaspora income is also taxed. They are taxed in the countries where they're working. So once again, you come and tax them in Kenya, that will be double taxation. Hence, it will cause a situation where the diaspora people feel like, why am I being taxed twice? That was my comment. Then the next thing I just wanted to comment is about the government spending. How will the government raise more money? In 2022-2023 budget, our total expenditure is 3.3 trillion. A recurrent expenditure of 2.2 trillion, then development of 715 billion. So you see there, there is an imbalance there where if the recurrent budget, that means the, the salaries and the wages, the administrative, if it's more than the development uh, expenditure, there is an imbalance there. I believe the development budget should be more than the recurrent. Then when you look at the counties, they've only been allocated 370 billion. And then we have a debt repayment and pension of 
that's 40% of the revenue, 864. So some of the things that the government need to consider is reducing, especially the expenses where the national government has been given two trillion. How can they reduce that expense to ensure that this goes to development? In regards to Kazim Tani, for now it is not workable because already we are suffering. So we want still to go get more debt to come and fund Kazim Tani. Then you still want to tax these young people because the, the, the taxes are, it's just punitive. So I give you money, then I still want money back from you. So Kazim Tan is not workable. The government needs to cut on its national government expense so that they can be able to encourage, even if it's that Kazim Tani, they encourage them to invest. If they encourage them to invest the right way, at the same time, they will be able now to pay taxes, reduce on taxes that you're giving this Kazi Mtaani, like the PYE or the corporate tax, the income tax they need to pay, just reduce it. But for now, the government spending, the national government needs to reduce that and channel the money to the right places. Thank you, Ramon. I'm just going to throw a, a slightly conceptual question around framing here to the panel before I get into the next round of questions that are coming in into the DMs. And this is in respect to how we in the media, how my industry is, is, is covering matters around the budget, because it seems to me that we tend to frame it in terms of the, the spending that is being done here is almost cost free or the cost is not you know that high. We make it look like it's this arbitrary thing where the state is spending someone else's cash. But we're not reminding people that, hey, this is A, your money, and B, the limits to how much you can spend and where you can spend it. Are, are we doing a sufficient job of explaining the trade-offs involved in saying that, look, if your recurrent expenditure as a government is way, way higher than what you can actually raise in recurrent revenue through taxes alone, you're essentially speeding towards disaster. Is, is how we, as the media, have framed this issue part of the problem? Josie, you can go first on this one. Thank you. L let me begin by saying that the issue of public participation in the budget process is quite a challenge. And budgets themselves, they are very technical. And apart from the people who work around maybe public finance and maybe in the, the discussions, especially the national level discussions, are quite limited. And therefore, the discussion, especially when the budget is being read, the, the, the discussion are picked up and then after that, no one is kind of following. And, and therefore, that, that is the question of wanting to create a lot of awareness in terms of budgets because one, we are the taxpayers and number two, we are the people who, who will really require the services that the government is offering. Then also trying to look at it from the government side of it. The issue is in the spending. The issue is in the spending. And one of the issues and the key challenge that we are seeing, especially in the spending, is the comprehensive of the information that the government provides, especially in the implementation reports. I, I personally feel that th there's not much information that is given that could actually allow the common Mwanaiji or the people who are in, in the budget spaces or generally the public members and the stakeholders and the people who are interested to be able to follow up on this process to the core. Though this is a challenge on the citizen side. It's a real challenge. Yesterday you saw someone demonstrating outside the national treasury and you are also able to see the, the CS being escorted by a lot of security officers. So it is a question of do, do really people know that this is their money and, and do, do really people know that this is a process that they should be duly involved. We have seen a challenge whereby like now we are having this discussion 
we have not been able to see the program-based budget or even the budget estimates, but yesterday the budget was read. So here the question is around public participation and how th those deliberations that the people and the stakeholders make, how they shape the whole discussions are about the gov government spending and the government raising of, of resources. Thank you, Rama. Thanks, thanks, Josie. Kwame and Nikhil, do you want to weigh in on that, around the framing of, of these decisions on, on the budget? Because we, we seem to be presenting it, we in the media, that is, we seem to be presenting it as a case of something that's costless, something that's in the abstract. Can I? Yeah, sure, go ahead. Okay, yeah, let me just say that the media has not attacked enough the idea that government has a gold mine where it extracts money and then buys as goodies. So you still saw today in the coverage, people talking about this is a Monanchi budget and another pe people talking about something else, all headlines. Uh, of course, some headlines talked about the debt burden, which was quite important. But on the whole, we have the idea that government is our parent or a Santa Claus and gives us gifts or gives to other people and, and denies it to others. We need to actually let people understand that the cost of government is actually the burden of our taxation. So framing opportunity cost is an important one. So for instance, I think we at the IEA run a poll, it's still running, it ends in about 20 minutes, about asking what people feel about the, the subsidy or the stabilization policy on fuel. And if you ask yourself, the national census shows that only 8% of households in Kenya have a car. So that's 8% of people receiving a subsidy from a collection of tax in other areas. And the equivalent that has been paid in the last six months alone, based on what is actually twice what is paid for free primary education, which benefits 11 million kids. So if we place it like that and we ask people that, look, the choice we are making here is to give a subsidy of 20 shillings per liter of premium petrol to this number of people as opposed to educating this number of kids, then it would be useful. When we are promised stadiums, for instance, we should ask ourselves that if a stadium costs us 1.2 billion, how many kids could we educate or how many schools or how many classrooms could we build for that? It's close to 600. So that's the kind of conversations that we need to frame. In addition to asking the cabinet secretary, he received some questions yesterday, somewhat tough, but among them was, how do you shift tax burdens from people who actually earn lower income towards others? It's not enough to simply say that, look, we are conscious of this and we are blocking the entry of eggs from whichever country using an excess tax. So yes, I mean, we are a long way to go, but basically that's the function for the media doing its best, to be honest, compared to other places. But yes, the, the opportunity cost arguments. And we have to stop believing that a big budget expenditure is necessarily a good thing in itself. Or taxation, as I've had some of us even here say, the government should get more taxes. Look, let me give this example before I shut up. When the country called Germany, was at the income level where Kenya is, which is $2,000, the amount of public spending relative to the gross domestic product was less than 10%. Kenya's is 31. So the idea that there's more money that should be taken out there so that something could happen is actually a belief in an escalation that sometimes supports both parliament and the executive and enlarging government and obviously giving a burden of taxes to all of us. So that's the lesson that all sides need. Thank you for that, Kwame. Let me just run through quickly through some of the comments that we're getting in from our DMs. It does appear there's a lot of commentary, interesting commentary, re with regard to the question of taxing diaspora remittances. Uh, cryptocurrency Kenya, CryptoHub KE, I believe you're in the conversation. You're saying if you tax diaspora remittances, it'll only lead to people seeking alternatives to send money back home. This is a lost cause. Well, perhaps not if they're going to do it with crypto, because you can sort of skirt um, the whole tax question around that particular issue. Well, I think. Not 100% sure on that. Another interesting comment coming in here. Should I buy government bonds back home 
or invest in a stronger currency bond like a euro one, because I feel that the investments I make in Kenyan shillings, once I factor in inflation and the depreciation of the Kenyan shilling, my returns are going to be low in the future. That did come into one of the DMs that we had with respect to Mwango's account. I guess the bigger question there would be what level of real returns would make Kenya an attractive enough destination to essentially be able to keep people around, to keep people bringing the money into the economy. Nikhil, do you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, I'm reluctant to give investment advice, Rama. But look, there's no doubt that this part of the world, and not, not necessarily just Kenya, is giving better returns on even on basic deposits with the banks. When you compare to what people earn in the UK on deposits the bank, 0.25% or whatever it is. So yeah, there is. But the foreign exchange risk is obviously quite big. As an example, and maybe Kwame can say if I'm right or wrong on this, but Eurobond won when we issued it at that 6.25%. The shilling was 87 to the dollar when we redeemed it was 103 to the dollar. So really, it didn't cost us 6.25, it cost us 31. But yeah, we also have to decide, are we a free market? I think Kwame was saying that. Let the shilling just float. Let lots of things float. Where on the one front, a liberalized market. On the other one, we're controlling petrol prices. At one stage, we were controlling interest rates. We're looking to control other things. We're sort of sitting on the fence on a lot of things as well. But Rama, before I hand back to you, I, this diaspora thing has really heated up quite a lot. I just want to reiterate, to me, there is no grounds whatsoever to tax diaspora remittances. If as a diaspora, you're remitting money back to the country and you're investing uh, in, I don't know, real estate, treasury bonds, whatever it is, then the income that you generate from that will be taxable. The key thing is that, and, and I think Phoebe said this, you're remitting it presumably out of your taxed income wherever it is that you live. And in any case, you're not going to be able to remit it if you are unable to demonstrate the source. So just to sort of close that one off, I really do not think there is any reason at all to tax diaspora remittances. And the day that happens would be an extremely sad day, I think. Thanks, Rama. Indeed. Some interesting feedback coming through here from some of the lawyers that we have listening to the space. Mugambi Nandi, part of our, our legal fraternity here in the country, he's weighed in on that, that proposal to essentially have 50% uh, of the tax dispute in question held back, essentially deposited by the litigant as a precondition to making an appeal. And he's making three main points with respect to that particular idea. One, Carrier, in his view, will be trying to enforce a decision that is not final, since an appeal means the litigation is not over. Two, it's essentially an attempt to close the door to justice. An appellant should not find a huge boulder at the doors of justice in the form of a huge payment before he or she can then access the corridors of justice. And three, just as important, it's deprivation of private property in the sense that there's no final court order when an appeal is pending. So for those three main reasons, Mugambi Nandi believes that if it does get challenged in court, it will essentially be thrown out. I'm seeing a couple of interesting people have joined the conversation. We're going to try and hand over the mic to a couple of them in just a moment, but let me go through some of the other comments that we're getting through. Nickel, do you have any way in? Can I comment on what Mugambi said? Great to have a lawyer in there because I totally agree with him. That suggestion that we're going to take 50% of the disputed tax in order for you to appeal up the courts is just wrong. There's no other way to describe it. And and I'm glad that, Mugambi, you explained it in legal terms, which I was unable to do, but it, it is just totally wrong and it really has to be stopped. 
Kerry, uh, what, what do we make of this proposal to rebrand Kerry from just being the Kenya Revenue Authority to being the Kenya Revenue Service? Is it another instance of just putting lipstick on a pig and then saying, oh, hey, look, this looks lovely. It's brilliant. It's totally different. 100% not the same thing. What, what do we make of that proposal? Are they any different? I, I, I don't know if there are any KRA guys on, on the meet, but whether you're Kenya Revenue Authority or Kenya Revenue Services, at the end of the day, you're still the taxman. You still have a particular role. I, I I didn't see anything in the speech that suggested they were going to change the way the KRA or the KRS, as it will become, are going to operate. It'll still be doing the same thing. Its job is to 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 enforce the the the, the tax laws set by the legislature in the country, and they will continue to do that whether they're called authority or service. So I I don't think that's a big deal actually. I, I may be wrong. KRA has got a reason for it, but I I don't see. Because unless there's a material change in the operational culture, it doesn't really change much, does it? Absolutely. It doesn't change much. Phoebe, Josie, Kwame, do you want to weigh in on that whole rebranding exercise from KRA to KRS, including all the random jokes that we've started to make about, you know, KRS-1 being the, the new designation for the, the Commissioner General? It's, it's interesting because already people have a very specific attitude towards KRA. Remember, we are Kenyans. You hear KRA and people start running. And it's not about changing the name to be Kenya Revenue Services. It is now the KRA changing how they, they do things. So educating the, the community, empowering the society, then other than empowering the society, just bring out and show the people that this is where your taxes are used. And that is where the gap is. People want to pay taxes, but you hear people saying, why do I need to pay taxes and, and I have a road where I can even, I can even plant a banana tree there. So it's very interesting. So for me, it's not more about changing the name. It's just about uh, empowering the, the community, the society, and at the same time, uh, ensuring that people see where the, the, their money is going. Dan Kanoten, I've just added you to the speaker list here for a moment. Do you want to weigh in? Give us your comment. Um, just keep it short and tight. Thanks, thanks, Rama. In my opinion, no amount of name changing will help KRA. What happens, this is not the first time we are having institutions change names. We used to have the, the Kenya Police Force. When they changed to National Police Service, it didn't improve their efficiency and efficacy. So even KRA, it has more to do with the attitude. And if fundamental operation culture within KRA is not going to change, then no amount of rebranding in terms of name changing will help uh, them achieve their mandate. And I agree with the Hill. It does not matter what you call yourself. As in, at the end of the day, as long as your foundational mandate remains the same, no amount of name changing will help matters here. Thank you. Josie, I know I probably cut you off briefly before I went over to, to Duncan. Thank you, Rama. My opinion on the name changing, are we having any reforms in the institute? And will the name change improve the collection of revenue? Or, or rather improve the services or generally the mandate of, of the Kenya Revenue Authority of services. So it is not about the issue of changing name because rebranding should come with reforms and those reforms should be the one uh, that is telling us what is KRA going to do differently this time around to ensure maybe they meet their revenue targets, to seal the uh, revenue leakages and all that. So it is not about the name change, but what... Uh, they are going to do differently based on the new name. Thank you, Ram. Okay, so more of the usual cosmetic changes that we tend to see around government policy here without any tangible benefits. Tony Gitonga, your regular commentator on public finance issues, on taxes. Give us your two cents. You have the mic. 
Okay, thank you very much. I joined late because of the Kenya power issues, but honestly, on the name change, I think KRA is still behaving like um, an authority, more than a service, and it's about how they perform their tasks, not about the name. Over the recent months, we have seen a more aggressive and if we have to go by issues we see about company closures over tax, uh, tax disputes, increased litigation about uh, several issues that cannot be resolved by the KRA and that have very significant consequences on corporate uh, survival, then I think unless the reforms that I will agree with the other speakers there are reforms about the performance that uh, improves the service, then there is no need to change the name. Thank you. All right, then. I'm going to put, um, just pulling back over the last decade, we've had an explosion in government spending. Year after year after year, we're seeing budgets that are coming higher and higher and higher. We've crossed that threshold where Recurrent expenditure is way higher than what we can actually raise through our recurrent taxes. Every single step of the way, as we've built up this near 9 trillion shilling debt mountain, legislators have essentially acted as a sort of handmaiden to Treasury, virtually rubber stamping most of the ideas that come through from Treasury. Have our MPs failed us in terms of legislative oversight, in terms of ensuring that we essentially don't fall ease our way into prosperity? But just as important, what do we need to do in the next five years to correct course? Kwame, let's start with you. All right. I mean, if there's a song I've sung over the last, the second administration of GBD is actually that MPs have not done well. Regardless of the fact that as Kenyans, we actually have given them a very good wage, very comfortable living, lots of comfort and actually protection. They haven't done well at all. We still have a parliament while it has all the tools. It has these fantastic research services in the parliamentary budget office and the services available to both houses of parliament. More often than not, they are led by the nose by the treasury and given the impression that guys, if you reduce any taxes, even when they're willing, if you reduce any taxes, the whole thing will blow up and then they accept it. But I think they have a perverse incentive. And I think treasury, I would, I would say this advisedly, understands this by pegging this illegal thing called the uh, constituency development fund to the size of the budget. Basically it's two and a half percent of total spending. Um, therefore, members of parliament who are conscious of using this fund for patronage and as a way of campaigning are reluctant to reduce budget sizes or they see any growth in expenditure as obviously ratcheting upwards the amount of money that they can also use in the constituency to advance themselves, to advance their own political careers. So we really need to fix that. They haven't done well. While there's chapter 12 of the constitution gives them immense powers, they have hardly ever applied those powers to actually stop the executive they apply them stringently against other commissions. So for instance, whenever a commission stands against parliament, such as the Salaries and Remuneration Commission, the CRA once in a while, parliament clamps back very aggressively. So we know that three and a half years ago, the Salaries and Remuneration Commission refused to allow for certain allowances. And in the next year, parliament cut the operational budget by almost half, 300 million all at once, which was atrocious. But they would never do that to treasury. They would never do that to stadiums. So they're talking about not liking the SGR, they haven't seen the contracts, but they're funding it nevertheless. They're talking about stadiums and they're talking about dams that are disappeared, but they're funding that nevertheless. So yes, if you ask me, on a scale of one to 10, Kenya's parliament, given the past that they have, have performed at a grade of three and a half. 
very poor. That's, that's even worse than an F grade. Nikhil, where do you stand on, on the performance of Kenyan legislators over the last decade? Epic fail or somewhere in between? Just a sort of middling grade, maybe a D plus? I, I wouldn't say epic fail, and I certainly wouldn't say an A or a B, maybe not even a C. Some things perhaps have been good, but I, I, I do think that we are not getting uh, our money's worth necessarily, and for all our, our legislators are probably one of the best paid, paid in the world in, in some ways. So the middling D, I think, I don't think we can say any more than that. Phoebe, Josie, do you want to weigh in on this particular issue? Okay, thank you, Rama. So in terms of measuring the performance of the parliament, and uh, I would go back to their roles, and I would want to ask ourselves, the role of the parliament, especially in the approval of the expenditure and the spending plan, I feel they could have done better, especially in trying to curb the financial deficit. Because the parliament is the National Assembly, to be very specific, is the one that approves all these budgets and even the supplementary budgets. So I I really feel they have not done Kenyans some justice, especially when it comes to passing some of the policies which are detrimental to Kenyans, especially on the issue of the debt. It It is the increment in the public that has taken us where we are right now, even in terms of increasing taxes. All this is being done for us to be able to, one, to settle the debt, and number two, to be able to finance the budget. And this is an area whereby the, the, the National Assembly, to be specific, would have been the advocate of the citizen. So in a scale of uh, one to ten, I would say, I, I would just give them around five. Thank you. This, this question goes to both you, Josie, and, and, and Tony. Given all the economic issues that we're facing at the moment. Government spending is clearly way out of control. We're facing a debt service crisis, regardless of how you want to package it. Does it surprise you, though, that these economic issues have not really been front and center in this election? Because it sounds, the setup that we have now seems to be a situation where MPs have essentially been derelict in their duties for the last decade. And they're essentially getting away with it. If, if you allow me, I think on this issue, I wouldn't actually give the parliament uh, five, three, two. I would actually give them a, a total fail. Because um, the, the function of the parliament is basically to legislate and then oversight. And uh, what they oversight mostly on is not only on the approval of the budgets, but on their total implementation. Now, one thing you realize is that we have increase in expenditure year on year that is mostly pegged on a projected revenue is entirely unrealistic. For example, if you look at uh, the current budget where we have an increase in revenue forecast of about 350 billion, then you really don't understand what is the basis for such a projection. And what you realize is that the parliament will not ask a question about the projection passed before even looking at, because generally the the, the expenditure is supported by the revenue. So if you cannot raise the revenue, then you cannot spend. But if you make a wrong projection, basically you inflate an expenditure and you end up with a real deficit that is bigger than 862 that has already a billion that is projected. The thing is, the parliament will just pass the budget because as Kwame has said, and 
he, he has been consistent on this. The parliament will not ask a question because the, the, their budget is catered for. In this budget, we realize that the parliament has a huge increase in their budget, but the judiciary budget has been trimmed, yet we have an expenditure that has, has grown. So I think um, the parliament has been entirely complete. It's oversight. If you look at the SGR, the parliament has the, the powers of the High Court to demand for the documents, but they don't have the documents. I mean, they don't have the SGR financing contract. So I think the parliament is the weakest link that we have in the public finance management in this country. If they want to stand on their feet and ensure that we have fiscal discipline, we can have it. But at the moment, we can't, and I'm not surprised. I'm going to circle back to that question around how do we change that uh, in just a moment. But Phoebe, I know you wanted to make some comments with respect to uh, the 60-day objection window that the Treasury CS put forward, and also on the tax incentives that he was proposing around donations. Thank you, Rama. So I'll start with the donation. It's a very interesting uh, space to be, especially where... They are now saying that donations are now allowable. They are now allowable expenses. So before that, they were not allowed. And so some of the questions I'm just asking, if this is not properly monitored, it will be misused because it is an election time. So are we saying that these donations are, if channeled to a political party or such, that is why this law is there? That is the question I keep asking myself. Because over the years, we've had companies saying we are donating to even children's home, but they do not have a certificate. Hence, that's why we cannot be able to allow the expense. But we are seeing now it has been approved. It's a good move. However, at the same time, it is a move that may be misused and people may use it or rather companies may use it and individuals in not a very right way. That's for donations. In regards to the 60 days where Kerry initially, the, the law was there and they were told, so the objection decision, the requirement is a 60-day cycle. But from experience, what we've seen with C. Kerry when it's the 57th day or the 59th day, they ask you for a new document that was not in the list that they had shared before. Then they start counting day one again. So this is a good move. And this, we are hoping that it will expedite the dispute resolution. And for me, this again comes and conflicts the other rule where they say the 50%, because you're coming, one, you're telling us 60 days will be 60 days, but on the other hand, you're saying the 50%. So the 60-day cycle has been there. It's only that I believe that the Revenue Authority has just been misusing it. That's it from me, Rama. All right. So it's, we're now fast approaching 10 p.m. and we've been having your attention here for the last two hours straight, actually. We started around 8 p.m. So being cognizant of the time and your attention, I'd just like to, to move this discussion to the closing elements of it. We've covered spending issues. We've covered the nitty-gritty details of some of the tax proposals that we saw from the budget statement. To be clear, at this point in time, we still don't have access to the finance bill. It's not been made public. The budget books haven't come out as well so far. But Going into the 2022-2023 fiscal year, what are the things that we need to fix? What should we expect? Your forecasts in 60 seconds. Kwame, let's start with you. All right. What needs to be fixed? Well, I just think that we need tighter controls in the public sector. Just basically somebody who can actually make sure that 
whether there's 3.4 trillion to spend or not, every single amount is spent well. And obviously government meets its payment obligations because that's one thing that many, many farms rely on. So government holds everybody to have to pay their taxes on time. I think it's a good thing for government to also pay its bills on time. Nikhil, you go next. Yeah, we talked about it, national tax policy, a proper national tax policy, not something that's just simply because someone wants it. We, we need to have a good policy, we need to implement it, and we need to take it forward. We also need to control our government expenditure. It is spiraling out of control, and we need to control wastage, whether it be through just simple wastage of we don't need to spend this or wastage through corruption. We have to stop that. That is really one of the key things that's going to help us balance our books, which I don't think we can do right now. Thanks, Rama. Just a quick follow-up on that. Do you think we need a sort of balanced budget rule to be baked into the budget, pretty much like what some European countries have, where we say your fiscal deficit cannot go past, say, 3% of GDP or 3% of whatever your tax revenue for the previous fiscal year is? Is that something you'd strongly push for for the next five years? I I don't think we're in a position to do it at the moment. I, I think there's a lot of groundwork to be done for us to get to a position where we can say, right, this is what we're going to stick to. And and I think we're a long way away from that. But in the long run, yes, no reason why not. Thanks, Rama. Thanks, Nikhil. Phoebe, your closing views. My closing view is the government needs to ensure the balance between the expenditure and the revenue. If the revenue is $2.4 trillion and we can be able to work with the $2.4 trillion, why not cut the unnecessary expenses? That's one for the revenue and the expenses. Two, in regards to taxes, the government needs to rethink on lowering the tax rate to encourage people to pay taxes. Once they are able to lower the tax rate, be it VAT, be it PYE, for PYE, they lower the PYE rate, the PYE band, so that there can be more money where people are ready to spend. Hence, the consumption will be high. And then the last thing I'd encourage the government or I'd I'd tell the government and the National Treasury to do is before they even publish the finance bill, they need again to call the public and ask the public, how do we work together? So it is all about working together with the government and not the government working as an individual that is not consulting the key stakeholders. Thank you. Josie. Thank you, Rama. Mine is that the budget was read. It's next going to the parliament. The parliament can still uh, do something on the budget 2022-2023. And this something is to try to make the budget and ask the right question to the national treasury. We need to be realistic. We'll be having a new government come August this year, and there will be implementers of this, of this budget, perhaps, and most likely. And we have seen what supplementary budget does. So we need to ensure that in the next three years, in the medium term, that the decisions that we made around uh, revenue and expenditure, they are very, very realistic. For example, I would say the 2.2 ordinary revenue collection is very unrealistic given what we, we, we currently collected in the year 2020-2021. So let us make uh, a realistic projections. That is why we usually have documents like BROP, the sector working groups, to just inform us to make decisions. So another thing, let us make budgets and election issues. We are here, I would say we are here 
because of the leaders that we chose for them to make decisions on our own. So we still have a chance to change the situation by the cadre of the leaders that are going to vote in. Let us make a budget issue, an election issue. That will be my closing remarks. Thank you very much, Rama. Tony, final word from you. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. I got just uh, three things. Number one is, I think this year the government should first concentrate on uh, clearance of the pending bills, both for counties and the MDAs. The, those pending bills actually affecting businesses and, uh, and the economy. It's actually almost amounting to an economic shock and should be really addressed quite fast. The government should also now concentrate on this timely disbursements in the counties. And I think this would be very important because it would, uh, it's issues of absorption of the budgets so that we don't see low disbursements in quarter one and quarter two. And then we have uh, rushed spending towards uh, the closure of the financial year. And uh, the, the last bit would be on the fiscal discipline. Uh, I think that we're missing that too much. The wastage, that is addressed at least so that the budgets, the, the amount of spending that is done reaches the projects that they are supposed to do. And I think on this, the, the parliament should be more proactive in ensuring that, uh, that, that, that uh, budgets are properly oversighted. Oversight not only the budget, but the entire implementation process. And on this, we can actually do something towards a, a balanced budget. And on that question, I think we should actually, in the long term, set a, a, a quite a legal limit for the fiscal deficit. Thank you very much. All right. Sawa, sawa. Asanteni sana for all our speakers who've been generously donating their time for the last two and a bit hours to be here with us. I'd like to close with an interesting DM that Emmanuel Lai sent over to the DMs for the Mwango accounts. When I see the situation we're in today, I remember the phrase from 2013, choices have consequences. We as Kenyans chose these leaders, and some of us are gearing up to choose them yet again. My plea to all of us is to register as voters and to think very carefully about who we vote into office. Wrapping up this uh, particular space covering the Kenyan budget for the 2022-2023 fiscal year, Thank you very much for your time and your attention. And of course, the content continues on Mango Capital.